Good morning. It's Thursday, the 7th of September, and this is Govindraj Ethiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top reports and themes for the day. India accounted for almost half of the global real-time payments in 2022, says the Reserve Bank. Crude prices hit $90 a barrel. Fears of $100 sweep the markets. And the Indian rupee hits an all-time low against the dollar again. A vaccine for shingles leads the way to more vaccines as preventive cures. This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. India scores half the world's real-time payments. India has accounted for 46% of the global real-time payments in 2022. Digital payment transaction India are more than the four other leading countries combined. The Reserve Bank Governor Shakti Kanta Das said yesterday at the Global FinTech Festival in Mumbai. He also said that as per the World Bank's Global FinTech database for 2021, 76% of adults worldwide had access to an account in a bank or a regulated financial institution as compared to 51% in 2011. In comparison, the percentage of adults in India who had access to a bank account increased from 35% in 2011 to 78% in 2021. And that number should be a little higher now. Moreover, he said that India's fintech industry could generate around $200 billion in revenue in seven years' time, or 2030, and could potentially contribute to approximately 13% of the global fintech industry's total revenue of $1.5 trillion then. The global fintech sector currently generates about $245 billion of annual revenue, which is only 2% of the global financial services revenue, the Reserve Bank governor said. He also pointed out that digital transactions in India increased from 1.2 billion in 2014 to 90 billion in 2022. The Reserve Bank governor urged fintech players to form a self-regulatory organization at the earliest while addressing the gathering at the fintech fest which is of course interesting because I somehow would think that the self-regulatory organization or organizations were already in place. Das also plugged the central bank digital currency saying the reserve bank was planning to test more used cases in the wholesale pilot as well as the retail pilot which launched on December 22 and which covered both person to person as well as person to merchant transactions the digital currency as you know is a virtual currency the pilot is testing the robustness of the entire process of digital rupee creation distribution and retail usage in real time It's being operated through 13 banks across 26 cities around 1.46 million users and about 0.3 or 300,000 million merchants are currently part of the pilot as of August 31st 2023. The governor says there is full interoperability of this new digital currency with UPI QR codes and are targeting 1 million CBDC transactions per day by the end of the year. This could provide enough data points to study various design choices, used cases and also behavioral patterns on the part of users. He also outlined the linkages between growing financial inclusion and growing mobile connectivity. Now all this is logical of course, but more so when you look back at it. But listen to what he said. Now so far as Aadhaar is concerned, Aadhaar which is India's biometric identity system provides a single and portable proof of identity as on 30th November this 30th November last that is 2022 unique identification authority of India had issued 1.3 billion Aadhaar identities that is 
135 crore Aadhaar identities. The unique Aadhaar identification number allows individuals to verify their identity through authentication regardless of their location, thereby ensuring convenient access to not only financial not only financial services, but also the various kinds of financial benefits and other subsidies which the government is extending for, you know, for the needy sections. Now, Aadhaar has also enabled the fintechs to offer paperless and contactless financial services. And it has enhanced customer convenience, strengthened the security of the financial transactions, and substantially mitigated the risk of identity fraud. It's a good example of how digital public infrastructure can be leveraged for achieving public policy objectives. The third aspect in the Jam Trinity, as you are aware, is a mobile connectivity. Now, the mobile connectivity has also, in India has also grown exponentially. The number of Internet users through mobile phone in India has grown from about 70 million, 70, 70 million in 2014 to about 800 million in 2022. During the same period, the number of digital transactions in India grew from one point, that is, I'm talking about the number of transactions. Now, during the same period, that is, you know, what I mentioned just now, that is from 2014 till uh, 2022. Now, during this period, the number of digital transactions in account grew from one point 2 billion in 2014 to about 91 billion in 2022. Increasing affordability of mobile phones, cheap access to data, and the expansion of mobile network coverage have spurred the growth in adoption of mobile wallets, UPI, and other forms of and other methods of digital payments. Now, let me also touch upon UPI, which is now very well known, which is, uh, in fact, has emerged as an international model and a success story. But let me also mention that, uh, you know, I would like to compliment the entire team of uh, NPCI and the team in the Reserve Bank for working together to, to take UPI forward. Oil prices shoot up again. Oil prices softened a little yesterday after crossing $90 a barrel the day before, sending jitters through global markets and leading to speculation that $100 a barrel was not too far off. Oil prices eased on a firmer dollar and investors paid less heed to supply cuts from Russia and Saudi Arabia. A stronger dollar can generally influence oil demand because it makes the fuel more expensive for holders of other currencies. On Tuesday, oil prices rose to their highest since November last year or a 10-month high after Saudi Arabia and Russia extended their voluntary supply cuts to the end of the year. Now, this obviously got people worried because winter is now beginning to approach and energy demand usually shoots up in this period. With the production cut extended, we anticipate a market deficit of more than 1.5 million barrels a day in the fourth quarter, a UBS analyst wrote in a note to clients. UBS, an investment bank, now expects Brent crude to rise to $95 a barrel by the year-end, according to Reuters. 
to see where oil prices were headed and more importantly, what was likely to drive them, I spoke to Peter Maguire, CEO of XM Australia based in Sydney and who tracks several global asset classes actively, including in the region. He joined us from Sydney and I began by asking him what was suddenly driving up prices. It's been a, an almighty six or seven trading sessions. The market's been strongly bid up and there's been so many factors that have seen, I think, a return as far as bullish sentiment. If you look at the big picture, and I think we've got to look at that, crude at a 10-month high. So there's the first part. Russia's rolled over its extra cuts to December and so has Saudi. So the two elephants in the room uh, as far as those OPEC plus players and where does that leave producers and where does that leave the demand and the consumer? So I think that if you look at the picture, it was probably held underwater a little bit. It was pushed down and we've had a now it's a resurgence as far as price over this Northern Hemisphere summer period. Right. So there's winter that's coming and obviously energy demand and consumption will rise. So do you feel that prices are therefore now set to rise much higher, somewhat higher? Yes, I do. I don't necessarily a headline as far as and a time horizon. I mean, if I go out to the end of the year, I, it's very hard to forecast into 24. But if there's a couple of issues that one needs to be conscious of, even from an LNG perspective, liquid natural gas and the Chevron field, they've got talks that come into play from a strike perspective in Western Australia starting tomorrow. But that's another subject altogether. But that's gas and that's you know the heating of homes and all of that in the Northern Hemisphere winter. So if we roll forward, you know, that four-month window, September, October, November, and December, I would think that crude will be higher towards the latter part of the year than where it is now. I won't be surprised for it to be high 90s and if not in the hundreds, but I don't know what that number is going to be and what it's going to represent. The reason, and there are so many reasons one could use, but there just seems to be, in some ways, global slowdowns, but the consumption really hasn't tailed off that much. People are still driving. People still need mobility. They still need energy. And that's where I just think that, you know, with these cuts in production, you're going to see higher prices. Right. So UBS analysts said that with production cuts extended, they expect a market deficit of about 1.5 million barrels a day in the fourth quarter of 23. And they project $95 a barrel by year end. So my question to you, Peter, is really what are going to be the determinants of which way the prices go? I mean, what else should we be looking at? I mean, you already talked about the supply cuts, but is there anything else that could potentially drive prices in either direction? Well, absolutely. I mean, we haven't even looked at it in a couple of key points. First off, let's look at seasonality. Seasonality is such a huge component. We'll talk about hurricanes. Hurricanes, traditionally, the middle of the season is about the 20th of September. Now, if you get a succession of hurricanes moving into the Gulf of Mexico, that can really impact production to all those rigs. So let's hope that we don't see any weather outages because that's really going to cause much concern to production from the US side. And the other part that we need to be conscious of, geopolitical concerns. So you've still got this Ukrainian-Russia situation bubbling away. It's a protracted war that doesn't seem to have an ending. I live in Sydney, Australia. You're a lot closer to the action than I am from a geographical standpoint. But there seems to be a lot of tensions building at the moment. The BRIC nations, Iran, what's happening as far as US dollar, 
where are we? Russia and the BRICS, Brazil, India, China. What's the fabric of this? Where's it going to be as far as versus the G7? I think that's a huge component of possible instability as far as dollar and to the market sentiment overall. So there's that fundamental. And then you're talking about geopolitics, talk about North Korea, talk about Taiwan and China. These are little situations. These are major situations. It's still to the point that the world started becoming involved in geopolitics. So I'm sitting here going under a perfect, is it going to be a perfect storm, Gavin? Or is it going to be we sail into Christmas and there's no bumpiness on the road and we're happy at 95? I don't know. That's a somewhat comforting note to end on because we are not talking more than 100 or 100 and less than 100. Thank you so much for joining me. All right. All the best, Gavin. Thank you and take care. Speaking about a firmer dollar, Bloomberg is reporting that authorities in China and Japan are stepping up efforts to defend their currencies against a surging dollar that threatens to fan inflationary pressures. Japan on Wednesday issued its strongest warning in weeks against rapid declines in the yen and shortly after, China's central bank offered the most forceful guidance on record with its daily reference rate for the yuan as the managed currency weakened to a level unseen since 2007, says Bloomberg. The dollar strength also weighed on European currencies, with the euro and the pound dropping to their weakest level since June on Tuesday. Back home, the rupee on Wednesday fell by 10 paise to close at an all-time low of 83.14 against the US dollar. It had hit its lowest level of 83.13 on August the 21st. In other and stock markets going up this time, the BSE Sensex closed up with a gain of 100 points at 65,881. The NSE Nifty closed up at 19,611, that's up 36 points. The NSE benchmark, interestingly, has closed above 19,600 levels after a month, having gained 357 points in the previous four trading sessions. A snack brand is up for sale. You must have encountered the brand Haldiram over the years in many places on packets of large and small bujia snacks and restaurants under the same name. Several suitors have seen them too and not surprisingly want to buy it. Reuters is reporting that Tata Group's consumer unit is in talks to buy at least 51% of Haldirams, but Haldirams is holding out on valuation according to people briefed on the matter who told Reuters. Haldiram is a fairly household name in India and is also apparently talking with private equity firms including Bain Capital about the sale of a 10% stake. Tata Consumer Products owns UK tea company Tetley and has a partnership with Starbucks in India. A spokesperson for Tata Consumer Products says it does not comment on market speculation and Haldi Ram's chief executive Krishna Kumar Chutani also declined to comment. Haldi Ram was set up as a tiny shop in 1937 and has a roughly 13% share of India's $6.2 billion savoury snack market to which the Bujia category belongs, according to Euromonitor International. The only competition in size seems to be Pepsi, which is famous for its lay chips, which has about 13%. Haldiram is a global brand and is also sold in markets like Singapore and the United States and has about 150 restaurants selling local food, sweets and Western cuisine too. Vaccines, a new way of life. We usually take a whole bunch of vaccines as children and then forget about them and only encounter them again when administering them to the next generation. 
covid of course changed that for the first time in a few decades depending on how old you were you were lining up a couple of years ago to get vaccinated not once but even thrice a few months ago glaxo smithline pharmaceuticals launched a vaccine for shingles rather to prevent it in adults over 50 years before we come to the vaccine a quick definition the mayo clinic says shingles is a viral infection that causes a painful rash and can occur anywhere in your body It typically looks like a single stripe of blisters that wraps around the left side or the right side of your torso. Doesn't sound good at all. Shingles is caused by the varicella zoster virus, the same virus that causes chickenpox. After you've had chickenpox, which I'm guessing many of us have had, the virus stays in your body for the rest of your life. Years later, the virus may reactivate as shingles. It isn't life-threatening but can be very painful. Vaccines, says the Mayo Clinic, can help lower the risk of shingles. Now GSK's vaccine Shingrix for the prevention of shingles and post-herpetic neuralgia in adults over 50 years is one such vaccine. GSK says a seroprevalence study in Indian subjects showed that by the age of 40 years more than 90% had this virus in their body and were vulnerable to shingles. How does the shingles vaccine from GSK work and more importantly are we likely to see more vaccines to address disease conditions as preventives rather than curatives that we are used to? I spoke with Dr. Rashmi Hegde, Executive Vice President Medical Affairs at GSK, and began by asking her to tell me about this new vaccine. So shingles is the common term that is used in layperson's language, but it is also known as herpes zoster, and this is caused by the activation of the varicella zoster or the chickenpox virus. So usually children experience chickenpox, they suffer from chickenpox in childhood, and sometimes they may have chicken pox without having the rash so there may not be any clinically visible disease or clinically visible chicken pox and this virus then stays dormant in the nerve cells for life so with age what happens is that the immune system of the human beings we have something known as immunosenescence the immune system weakening and when there is weakening of the immune system the inactive virus becomes active and causes shingles and roughly about 30% of the people over the age of 50 60 years will suffer from shingles at least once in their lifetime so you're saying whether you had visible rash or not you could be a candidate for shingles at this point or only those who did not have the rash then are more likely to be candidates at this point So you have something known as subclinical infection and a subclinical infection is where you don't manifest the signs of infection for example if a person has hepatitis and hepatitis is usually visible as jaundice right and a person could be having subclinical hepatitis which means the person will not be having any signs of jaundice so no yellowing of the eyes but if you do the liver function parameters they will show that the liver enzymes are raised So similarly one could have a subclinical shingles or chickenpox infection not shingles the chickenpox infection and that's been true also about covid right during covid there were a lot of people who didn't show signs of the infection but they probably had some subclinical infection and therefore you know they were immune to getting a second attack of covid Yeah and now that you mentioned covid covid is obviously very transmissible is shingles also similarly transmittable or transmissible no actually if there is a person who has a shingles he has a rash over the body and these are vesicles they are filled with fluid and this fluid will contain the chickenpox virus 
So if individual A has shingles and individual B who has never had shingles or chickenpox comes in contact with individual A, then if the vesicles are open and the fluid is transmitted, of course, it requires very close contact, then the person B could get chickenpox but not shingles. And would I know whether I have the virus in me right now, whether it's dormant within me, assuming I was a chickenpox you had suffered from chicken pox. Yeah. So we say that 90% of people over the age of 50 years have the virus dormant in their body. It's less than 10% and this is global figure. So I think in India, you know, with our crowding and with, you know, our high population, I think even more than that would be positive for the chicken pox virus. Right. So you are now responding to this with vaccines. So tell us how the vaccine would work in the case of shingles. So the vaccine helps to deal with the virus which is within the nervous system cells. So these are cells within a certain part of the spinal cord and the vaccine helps to prevent the disease being transmitted. It produces antibodies and it subjugates the virus. So is that called a vaccine or is it like a cure? Actually, it's two questions, I think. So one is when something like this is administered at this time, is it more of a cure in more sort of English language or is it a vaccine which also prevents something happening in the future? It's not a cure. So, for example, if a person with shingles comes and takes the vaccine now, that does not make him better for shingles, for the episode of shingles that he has now. But if the person takes two doses of shingles vaccine, the vaccine for shingles, then at the end of one month after the second dose, we say that the person has the chance of having 90% plus immunity. Right. And in general now, looking ahead, we are of course seeing vaccines as a solution, as a preventive solution to many diseases. And COVID was of course the best example that we're all familiar with. So is that something that you see a lot now or in going ahead in the way science is going as well? So adult vaccination is part of the healthy aging spectrum. You know, people are talking about healthy aging all over the world. And as you know, there are people who are trying to also prolong life. But the important thing about prolonging life is to be able to have healthy years to that life. There's no point in having a long life without being healthy and able to do all the things that one wishes to do. So as part of this healthy aging, there is, of course, diet, there is exercise and there is sleep. And finally, there is vaccine. So there are vaccines available for different diseases that happen in the older age group like pneumonias, like flu, like including tetanus, diphtheria, all those diseases and also for shingles. Right. Dr. Hegde, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Govan, for inviting me. China bans iPhones in government offices. In another sign of how governments could crack down on unfriendly technologies or unfriendly countries without necessarily going all the way, China ordered officials at central government agencies not to use iPhones or other foreign branded devices for work or bring them to the office, the Wall Street Journal is reporting. In recent weeks, staff were given instructions by their superiors in workplace chat groups or meetings. The directive is the latest step in Beijing's campaign to cut reliance on foreign technology and enhance cybersecurity and comes amidst a campaign to limit flows of sensitive information outside of China's borders. Now, Apple could be hit, though how badly is not clear since this current directive touches upon government officials. 
Apple counts China as one of its biggest markets, relying on it for about 19% of its overall revenue, says the Wall Street Journal. Beijing for years has restricted government officials at some agencies from using iPhones for work, but the order has now apparently been widened. Of course, China is not the only one with such bans. Its restriction mirrors similar bans in the United States against Huawei, as well as against officials using Chinese-owned TikTok. Interestingly, two years ago, the Chinese government restricted the use of Tesla vehicles by military staff and employees of key state-owned companies, citing concerns that data the cars gather could be a source of national security leaks, according to the Wall Street Journal again. That's it from me for today. Do reach us on www.thecore.in, subscribe to us, read our newsletter, and tell us if you like our stories or don't. Have a great day. This was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.